Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. Glad to have you with us again today. I'm Brad White, and I've got a full crew here today. Good morning, Dustin. Good morning, Brad. And Bob. Good morning. Brian. Hello, everybody. And Philip. Hey, Brad. So we're glad to have everybody here to discuss some great topics. We've got a couple topics relative to what you might be doing on your operation this summer. We'll talk about hay testing and should you or should you not test your hay. We'll also talk about some of the things that happen with cattle at this time of the year, including snake bites, abscesses, potentially some other things, and what you might want to do to look out for those and address those. We'll also discuss the land-grant institutions, funding from the USDA, where do the research dollars go, and kind of as a follow-up to one of our discussions last week, Dustin's going to jump in on that. Before we get there, there's been some information that's come out that I know is very relevant to you guys. The cost of the ingredients to make a cheeseburger at home has gone up 21 cents. It started at, it was $1.86 last year to make a home-based cheeseburger. This year it's up 21 cents just because the price of things have gone up. But what I've got to ask you guys before we dive into that important economic topic is favorite ingredients to put on your cheeseburger, you can select two. Oh, wow. Well, I'm going to combine a couple of fa- summer you favorites. You can you can have two. Okay, two things well. on your cheeseburger. Fresh. Wait, wait, wait. Does bacon count? Yes. Oh, there you go. Oh, oh well, I was going to say tomatoes. I mean, I love tomatoes in the summertime anyway, just fresh garden tomatoes, and then you put that on a on a cheeseburger. That That's pretty good. So I'm going to say cheese. Yep. And then I like a little barbecue sauce. I know I, there's, I got friends that really don't like the barbecue sauce idea, but... Oh. You got tomatoes and barbecue sauce on a cheeseburger. That's pretty good. Brian, got your two? No. I've got five. (laughs) (laughs) Two. All right. Bacon's got to be on there. I don't like this question. (laughs) Uh, I'll go bacon ketchup, Uh, although I have three more. But Philip, I don't know. I mean, there's several things that I like on there, but I'll tell you one thing that I'm a little bit different than a lot of people. I'd rather have mayo on mine than ketchup and mustard. Hmm. There you go. Dustin? My two would be the bees, bacon, and brisket. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I I like his answer. (laughs) I like his answer a lot. How about you, Brad? Yeah. Yeah. Mine, mustard and pickles. Right. I'm surprised that none of you got the right answer, but (laughs) that was the correct answer that we were looking for, but you didn't get it. None of you got either of those right. Well, and then this is another thing that's changed, and I've got – you know, daughters that are almost grown and stuff. And they'll do things like put avocados and stuff on a burger. It's like, ah, okay, kind of, but no, not really. It doesn't go with your fried egg. It doesn't go with your tomato barbecue sauce theme. So on other topics, and I'm going to shift us back or we could talk about cheeseburgers all day. Thinking about some of the research funding, and Dustin, we talked about last week, changes in farm size, and farm size was increasing. And one of the things that we talked about a little bit was how technology or efficiency may be helping those farm size shift upward. Uh, but to get that technology, we have to have some way to figure out what works. And, and this is where we want to talk a little bit about how many, how this research occurs and how it's funded. Yeah, so there was an article put out by the USDA Economic Research Service that looked at basically government funding for agriculture research R&D. So how much do we invest? We being federal government, state government, this does not include private dollars because there's no way to track private dollars invested in research R&D. I guess one thought is why do we do it? They noted that between 1900 and 2011, they estimated for every $1 invested in R&D and ag space, uh, there was a $20 benefit for the U.S. economy. That's pretty impressive. Wow. 
pretty big, pretty impressive. In 2019, there was about 5.16 billion dollars, so 5.2 billion dollars invested by the federal state governments. But they noted that's one third lower than in 2002. Mm. So mm-hmm. it, it public funding has declined by quite a bit. 70 percent of those funds, of 5.2, goes to land grant universities. Uh, the other third goes to USDA agencies such as ARS, ERS. Uh, etc. But here's a question for you guys. What country invests the most into agriculture R&D? Name the top, I don't know, top three countries. Oh, wow. I'm going to say the United States is up there. I'm going to say number one in that I've traveled overseas. And one of the things that a lot of countries, if you talk to people that are in the know, they're very envious of our land grant system. And the, you know, and because we've been investing this way for 150 years. And so I would say we're number one. U.S., Canada, Australia, my top three. I know you said name five, but I can only get to No, three's fine. Brazil might be in there. They're really pushing their ag sector growth. No, they might be up there. Yeah, I'll throw Germany in the mix. I I think uh, I'll put U.S., Canada, and Germany. So uh, last data that some of these countries reported were probably 2016, so that was the last time, but... uh, if you uh, take a look right now, currently China, that's hands down by far. Second would be the EU, and then and then it's the U.S., but you got India and Brazil right there, and, and we're talking, now we're in 2022, they could have invested more than us. Hmm. Uh, but I think that's part of what the argument, what they're talking about is across time, the U.S. has spent less in R&D compared to China especially, but also the EU. India and Brazil are four and five, and they're starting to invest quite a bit. And so we think about not just the short term, but let's think in 10, 20, 50, 100 years down the road, what that, what these implications could Cause have. Because the U.S. the U.S. over the last 20 years, relatively <coughs> flat to decreasing the amount of dollars that they're spending. China is on a really st- steep trajectory growth curve. Correct. And if we were to go back even further, let's say back in the 1950s, I'm guessing the U.S., probably hands down would be uh, uh, investing more than any other country. Yeah. So you didn't tell us. We were, we were thinking of European countries. We didn't think about the EU, Brian. So probably you were right there in your in your guess. So I think that's an important thing to keep track of is thinking about over time, how do we get that investment and continue to maintain that investment? So Dustin, what, what can we do to, to help make sure the USDA or the government keeps funding some of that research? I'm not sure what in the into what each of us individuals can do anything per se, except maybe just, you know, continue advocating for uh, continued investment in the R&D space uh, on the ag side, continue conducting research like we all do uh, at our at K-State here and all the other land-grant universities, uh, just continue to show the, maybe not the return, I mean, that's not exactly what we would do, but uh, hopefully demonstrate how we are, we're helping the public but sh- shocking that the U.S. has fallen behind several of those other countries. And I, and I think that's a topic to maybe not anything we could do as individuals, but as a member of our national and state organizations, that's a topic to bring up because we actually need research, especially in the beef industry. We need research that is applied and on the pr- beef production side, right? Things that will help people do the improve their operation. So I'm going to shift shift topics and and move a little bit away from research, but maybe not too far. And one of the things that you guys have told me in the past is 
we talked about hay. And when we have talked about hay, we have talked about maybe sorting, segregating, saving some of my hay that I'm going to feed late when the cows are getting ready to calve or after they've calved. That should be my better quality hay. So I want to ask you, can I sort that by eyeball? Because we just made, we've just made hay. We're putting it away. We're stacking it in places that we're going to use it this winter. Can I sort it by eyeball or do I have to do hay testing? And Philip, I'm going to start with you. Would you recommend hay testing or not? Yes, I would um, to an extent. Um, I think some of it depends on what class of livestock you're feeding it to. You know, if we're feeding just old cows, you know, most likely it's going to be good enough quality um, unless we did a really poor job of getting it cut on time to meet the nutritional requirements of mid to late gestation cows. Um, but then now if we're, we're planning on um, developing some replacement heifers, we got to feed some lactating cows that are going to calve early in the spring before green pasture. Then I may want to know a little bit better what that nutritional value of that hay is because I'm probably going to have to supplement and I need to know what and how much to supplement. I'm going to say I, I interpreted what Philip said as a little bit yes and a little bit no. And I'm going to say a little bit no and a little bit yes. And that if it's my hay that I've been raising on hay pastures, hay, hay ground, that I'm familiar with, and I've got a pretty good feel for, well, when I when I harvest early in the boot stage versus late, I tend to... Now, I may have done some testing in the past. I'm just not sure I need to test every year once I've really developed that knowledge base. If I purchase hay... So you don't think there's a lot of year-to-year variability? The, yes. There is year-to-year variability in tonnage, and there is year-to-year variability in the timing of when the hay is optimally harvested or not. If I harvested it optimally this year, I'll bet it's real similar to hay that was optimally harvested last year versus late last year versus late this year. So yes and no. Yes, there's year-to-year variation, but not really um, in some of the things that I could still assess by eye and looking at my calendar. If I purchase hay, I'm much more interested in testing that because I don't have that year-to-year experience knowledge that I am counting on and I'm counting on my knowledge and experience being accurate. So I've asked two people to answer a yes or no question, and I got yes and no from both of them. So, Brian, I'm going to have to turn to you. Can, no. can you give me either a yes or a no? No, I can't. Because I had another question. So when you say, hey, testing, what, what exactly are you talking? Are you just talking about protein fiber? Are you talking about micronutrients? Like how in-depth? And maybe that will help answer the question. Like, how in-depth of testing are you talking about? Fair point. I, I guess I would think a very, you could interpret that at multiple levels. I would think the very basic test, right? So protein, fiber, you, you don't know a lot about it. Yeah, and, well, and one thing I thought of too, depending on what forage you put up for hay, nitrates may be an important thing to test um, in that hay. So, or especially if you've got some Johnson grass in your cool season hay field, then you've got you got issues there, potential issues. But I think from the um, nutrition part of it, the two main things you're interested in are protein and some estimate of digestibility. Now, from a lab analysis, we don't get a measurement of digestibility. We get a prediction from lab measurements. And so we, but we need something to understand how much energy that animal is going to be able to get out of that hay, because that is the Number one nutrient of the in the largest quantities that they need is is energy. 
And so we need to have an estimate of that. And usually in forges, that's a TDN number. Brian, do you have a yes or no on hay test? I agree with Bob and Philip. Yeah. <laughs> so he said yeah. yes and no. I said yes and no. I and I do I think I think Bob's comments are appropriate too, where you know, the more I know about the forage, probably the least likely I am to test and the less I know about it, the more likely I am to test. Yeah, and, and you certainly, and we haven't talked about the quantity that you would necessarily test, but you wouldn't test every bale, you would test a, a subset, and even then, you, you, there's a method to testing. If you're thinking about testing your hay, be sure to do it well so that you get a representative sample of whatever you're testing from those cuttings. And there's lots of guidelines out there from the extension or from other places that will give you those specifics, but you want to be sure that you test it well if you're going to test it. And you may only be testing just so I can find what do I need to allocate because it's those early lactation cows, right? That we're, if, if I'm going to be feeding into their lactation after they calve, I want to get them before they calve and right after they calve with the best quality hay I have. I may get hay that whether it's good or bad, it's all very similar, right? And if it's all very similar, I don't need to I don't need to test the sort. The only reason I'd test is to decide if I want to supplement. Yeah, I, I do think that I think your question of why are we testing and one of the main reasons is to sort the hay so that I can put the best hay for the, the best animals. And Philip kind of said, you know, old dry cows and we, we, we just kinda of almost throw our hands up in that their their nutrient needs are really pretty low. And their beef cows that aren't lactating uh, there's a lot of forages that will do pretty good. They still may need some supplementation of those forages, but not a lot. But that is a very different animal than a first calf heifer or a lactating cow. And that's the whole reason to do some testing is to actually then use the best quality hay for those animals that are first calf heifers, heifers, and lactating cows. And if I've got poor quality hay, I've got a place to use it. That would be in my dry cows. I think that's a, a good thing to think about as you come into winter because you may plan out because one reason to test would be you could plan out your needs and how much of that am I going to need or am I going to try to supplement, especially this year, parts of the country have been really dry, hay supplies are short, and we know hay prices have gone up in many parts of the country as well. So the other the other question I want you guys to address, and it was actually brought to us by our podcast producer, Jessica, who has seen before cows or bulls that get bitten by a snake. And so I'll lump together snake bites or abscesses of other nature, but I want to know first on the snake bite. So if I've got a cow and she's got a a big abscess or a big area, I think she may have been bitten by a snake. What do I do? Do I, ha do I have to suck the venom out like they showed in the movie? Yes, you do. You do just like, uh, no. no. Um, although snake bites in cows, it's, it's one of those things as a, as a veterinarian, you don't see it very often, or as a beef producer, you don't see it very often, but you do once in a while, and it's often memorable. If they get bit on the head, I have never seen a cow's head get so swollen as I have with a cow that got bit on the head with a snake bite and so it's a it's a memorable usually not fatal experience but i bet they're really uncomfortable go ahead phil well this is kind of a side note but brad's comment there just made me think about you know how hard it is to milk a beef cow can you imagine trying to suck the minimum out of a snake bite on a beef cow <laughs> that's why i'd love to see brad try yeah. <laughs> yeah no what bob said is true like the the actual envenomation part and we don't you know, a lot of them are probably dry bites and stuff. Um, the envenomation 
very, very rarely fatal in cattle. Now, some of them, you can get secondary infections that can be fatal. Um, if they get enough swelling, it affects their respiratory system. Or you can see fate, but it's usually a secondary. So with, with snake bite, we usually aren't using like an antivenom or anything like that. You asked about what do we do with them? Basically, we just manage them so they don't get worse. So we try to reduce the swelling. Uh, we try to prevent infection. Uh, some of them, it just kind of depends on where it is. If it's on the limb, like the legs or whatever, the main part of the body, usually the head, we typically, sometimes we have to manage those. You might have to hospitalize them and, you know, do some, some water therapy. They might be on a corticosteroid and antibiotic, but it's, it really is managing the individual case and how severe they are and where they're at. Do happen. We see mm -hmm. them. You'll see them every summer. But it is something that often we may not know for sure that it was a snake bite. So it's not like you have a smoking gun, but you do have a swollen area in a suspicious place. It may make you think of that, which is what made me kind of lump together with. We will occasionally see cows will get an abscess, head, face, neck, limb. And you'll see it in the summer, either because of snake bite <coughs> or some other oh, yeah. traumatic injury. If, if you own cattle long enough, you will see things like, you know, a piece of wire stuck in them, uh, a stick that, that migrates someplace that it shouldn't, a snake bite, all of the, and a lot of times what you'll see is a cow that uh, has an area that is swollen, a leg, a face, a brisket, maybe losing weight, not doing well. And, and what do you do about that? Well, you get them in and try to figure out what it is. Is, is it a piece of wire wrapped around their foot? Is it a stick? Is it foot rot? Uh, and and a lot of times the, the treatments are basically, if I can fix that, if I can remove something, I'll remove it. If I can't, I'll manage the, it's kind of like good nursing care. Just manage, make the animal comfortable, get them through that time period and, and help them heal through that. But a lot of times, and, and again, when you're talking beef cows that are out on pasture, the hardest part is actually to get them in a place where you can really examine them. But, but I like that idea of getting them up and making sure you take a look because not all of those things are just going to go away. And cows are one of the things, if they want to write down their strengths, one of their strengths would be making inflammatory materials, making materials to wall something off or make, a, make an abscess big. Yeah, they're really good at making abscesses. And I, you've both said it, and I'll reemphasize it. Whenever you have that cow with the swollen face or the swollen limb or the swollen brisket, it's always worth either you or a veterinarian or both taking a look at it because if it is a stick or a piece of wire, that is not going to get better. You have to physically get that out of there before anything's going to resolve, and you might have to drain it. And um, So it, it is worth having somebody take do an examination of that. Well, and there are some specific diseases that we can see that will also cause swelling on the face, which are not really an abscess. So we haven't sure. talked about lumpy jaw or wooden tongue, which are both diseases that can be caused by, they can start with a puncture, but they're very different treatments. So get them up and take a look. And both of those diseases, your veterinarian will be able to help you distinguish what are the, what are the differences and what do we want to do different treatment wise? Yeah. It, I think, you know, and, and if you've, if you've been a producer for very long, you've probably seen a veterinarian open up an abscess. That's not always the right thing to do. So if you if you don't know what it is, have your veterinarian take a look because you can, it could be. You don't want to open it and that's not what's in there. No, that is not what you want to happen. That is absolutely right. So I, I just keep going back to you. It's, you know, most of the, we started with snake bites, which usually, you know, they're not fatal. They're pretty easy to manage, but it's always worth making sure you know 
what it is and then treating it. Our antibiotics, if, if we have an abscess and we've got it open, are antibiotics necessary in every case? No, absolutely. I'll say in every case, absolutely not. In some cases, there there might be reason for doing that. But if it's just an abscess that's walled off, the treatment is to open it up get the pus and inflammatory materials out. Sometimes if it's big enough, you'll just flush it out with an antiseptic solution like a betadine or an Olvisan or something like that. But no, most of the time they don't need antibiotics. Back to cows are good at making pus, but they're also good at walling it off. Yep. And so it's it's not something that they necessarily need to be treated with systemically in all cases. But another good example of when you'd want to get your vet in and get them involved. Well, and the flip side of that is if it is truly an abscess, antibiotics alone are not going to fix it, right? So so it's not just do they need antibiotics, which most of the time the answer for, for a simple abscess, the answer is no. But the other side of it is just treating it with antibiotics probably is not going to make it better because that wall makes it where the antibiotics can't actually get in there where the bacteria and the pus are. So um, it actually goes both ways for that one. Yeah, because when we treat them with antibiotics, those antibiotics go through the bloodstream. And mm-hmm. if that wall is preventing blood from coming in there, and carrying that other stuff away, it's also preventing the antibiotics from getting in. So if you see those lumps and bumps, you, you certainly want to get them checked out. One one last thing on the, on the snake bite, would you expect, and we said the venom probably is not going to kill a cow, unlike many of our other species, right? So we have venomous snakes. What about the tissue? Would that tissue look different after, let's say, a snake bite versus I got poked with a locust tree? I, I would say not eventually. Uh, in the short term, they, they, I think I said earlier, the amount of swelling you can get from a snake bite is impressively more than any other thing I see them have. And so it, the, the skin can become really tight. It can be obviously, you know, very uncomfortable to the cow. And that is more extreme inflammation than you get with other things. But as it dissipates, and it will, um, then it starts looking like a lot of other things that could cause some swelling in, on an animal. So if I don't catch it early, it may start looking like a lot of other things that can cause some swelling and, and inflammation in a in a head or leg or something like that. Excellent. Thanks for the great information, guys, and appreciate you joining and listening with us today. As always, you can sign up for our electronic newsletter, which comes out weekly on Fridays, or you can send us a question if you like by sending us an email to bci at ksu.edu.